Fritz Hull, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. We're sitting here in the farmhouse at the Whidbey Institute uh, on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle. Um, when was the first time you saw this farmhouse? <laughs> I am happy to remember the first time I saw this farmhouse was 1965 on a winter's day, a little bit like this one. And I was looking for an old abandoned farm. And I wasn't sure that one really existed that was going to be close to my image of it. But a person brought me here, and uh, as soon as I walked around this old building, I knew. Hmm. I looked out at the ruins of what was a very nice family farm uh, much earlier, around the turn of the century, about 1905. This building was originally built. And I just had a very strong sense that either I had found it or it had found me, hmm. or somehow in that magic, um, I realized I didn't need to look any further. I had arrived. It was and right in front of me. <laughs> why were you looking for it? Well, this is, the, this is a bigger story. My work during the 1960s was as a campus minister at the University of Washington. So I was part of a lot of turmoil um, and active in a number of social movements. And in that period that I was on the staff of a large local church next to the campus, which was fairly conservative, but all the students were becoming radicalized, as I was, there came a point around 1970 when I felt, and my wife Vivian felt, it was time for a big shift. And a lot of what we had been doing and thinking in the 60s was uh, creative and um, highly energized, but much of it was pushing against or criticizing things in the society. We were all doing that. And the shift for me was like, this is the time when you create a positive alternative to the things you've been pushing against. See if you can do that. See if you can find some people who will do it with you. And so that is why we came here to this old abandoned farm to say, okay, let's see if we can create an alternative. Um, but I bought the farm in 1966, so I still played out that scene in Seattle. Um, but would escape up here on weekends or summer weeks, sort of planning what what the project could be. So we didn't really um, start anything or found anything until the year 1972. And what we founded was the Chinook Learning Community. So that's how I, uh, that's the short form. <laughs> of how 
how come we're sitting here this morning in this very same building that's been rebuilt twice since that time? And for me, sitting here in this living room with you is uh, is to really be at the heart of the matter. This this is the sanctum sanctorum for me. This is this is where the community was born. This is where the early community met twice a week. Twice a week we met for several years, right here. Mm. So we're going to uh, come back to yeah. the we're going to come back to that story of the community that met, but. Okay. Before I do that, uh, I want to go back to your origins. What year were you born? 1936. 1936. What date? August 31. And At 5 in the morning. And where were you born? Seattle. And what kind of family were you born into? A very loving family. My father was a schoolteacher. There were three kids. And one of the important things about my father was that he loved to fish. So he made sure that he built a fishing cabin. And as it turned out, here on Whidbey Island, on the beach. So he, in the late 30s, would come up to go fishing. He was a school teacher, had his summers off. And um, that is the house that we today live in. So... What started all of this, some of us like to say, was my father who loved to go fishing. So I, uh, I had a wonderful family life, and I grew up, Michael, in the summers, all summer, every summer, on the beach, literally, walking the beach, playing on the beach, playing up in the woods, um, sort of learning how to entertain myself, riding logs, building forts, <clears throat> messing about in boats. Uh, I just had a very, in some ways, um, idyllic, protected, loving, uh, very nourishing uh, years growing up. So I'm, I'm so grateful for my family. What was your father's name? His name was Lou. Mm-hmm. And Lou. what was his uh, heritage? Where did he come from? Well, we don't know a lot about our family tree. We just know that his father came out from Indiana. Mm, and okay. before that, it's, it's we're just not sure time. where we all came from. And what about your mother? My mother was from Spokane, uh, a school teacher, and spent her time raising the three of us. And what and was her name? Margaret. Okay. And were you the oldest? Middle at all. Um, so, uh, as you played on the beach yeah. on Whidbey Island yeah. as a child, uh, what memory do you have of the most numinous sense of connection that uh, came to you? Was there a moment or was it a gradual process? I'm just trying to get to your first awareness of numinosity in any form in your life, whether it was on the beach here or in Seattle where you were growing up, when did, uh, you know, there's an old, I think it's a Quaker thing that they say, uh, uh, what kind of house did you live in? What did you heat your house with when you were little? 
No, where, what was the first source of love in your life? Uh-huh. And what did you heat your house with <clears throat> when you were little? And then the question is, when did you first know that God loves you? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get at that, actually, at, 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 at the question of, you said you were born into a very loving family, so that really answers that question. But when was the first sense, whether that God loved you or that there was a sense of numinousness and power that was beyond that from your family? Where was your first sense of that? Oh, I like the questions. Um, I, I already indicated that I liked playing, mm-hmm. often alone, mm-hmm. on the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a paper route of 18 papers that took me down this little string of houses. So every afternoon I went for my walk, greeting all the neighbors, selling my newspapers, and ending up, my last customer was way up the hill on an old farm, and I delivered my Seattle Times to him every afternoon. So quite a few of my younger years were simply, it was more of a process, like you're saying. Um, how I see myself now, looking back on those years, is this little guy walking along the beach, looking for agates, picking up rocks and sticks, um, and knocking sticks out under the water, but walking on the edge between the water and the land. And more recently, in, say, Jungian terms, you can see yourself between two great aspects of life, walking on that edge between the deep and the reality of your life on land. And to this day, I can feel something very powerful going on in me when I walk like on a curved beach alone, and I'm right on that edge. So I think I grew up doing that, um, which I can now see uh, has been part of my whole life, Uh, somehow enjoying being on an edge um, between two great mysteries, and in a sense participating in in both. Mm. Now there was a moment, oh, I, I was 11 or something, and I was reading the Seattle Times as a kid, and I came across this large advertisement. And the reason it intrigued me was there there weren't any pictures on a full page of the newspaper. And I thought, well, what is this? And so I just started in reading. And it was a Christian sort of a tract, probably, that had been reproduced in the newspaper. And... I found myself reading every column, every word, and had a lot of questions. And there wasn't anybody in my family who was (laughs) willing to sort of engage my questions, but I felt a certain intrigue in it, almost a certain thrill that I had discovered something. And I can today remember a line from that tract, a quotation from the Old Testament that said, Call on me, and I will show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. 
<laughs> and as a little kid, that impacted me. I didn't know what it meant. Was your family religious? or No, I think my family was one of those that avoided it because uh -huh. somewhere back in their lineage there was too much of it or it was, right. too, it was repressive. And so, What were their social politics? Were they conservative, progressive? What was their orientation? Not progressive, uh -huh. not particularly conservative, uh -huh. not particularly engaged. And my, what? my parents didn't talk politics. What about books in the house? Were there books in the house? Not really. Okay. No, my parents weren't inclined that way either. I mean, no, they weren't. So they, what were they inclined toward, other than being loving parents and teaching? Well, that was well. those were the big ones. Okay. Um, their friends, their immediate friends, right. uh, just socializing and, mm -hmm. in, in their way. Mm -hmm. um, my father was a very dedicated teacher and coach. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a lot of our life, was mm -hmm. the high school where he taught, mm -hmm. and the kids and the teams. And so I was raised in that kind of atmosphere. So did you go to the high school where he taught? I did. What school was that? Roosevelt High School, north end of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And what were you like as a senior in high school? What was I like as a senior? I, I was very active in the student body politics. and um, Were you elected to some office? Oh, I was vice president of the student body. and mm -hmm. I mean, I did those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, were you in athletics? Too? No, but I was a, like a manager on the team, mm -hmm. taking care of stuff and kind of working for my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. my... Older brother was the all-star quarterback, and my mm -hmm. younger sister was the song leader, and our family was very involved in high school athletics. So your older brother was the quarterback, yeah, and your sister was the... The song leader. Song leader. And you were a manager yes. of, of uh, teams? Well, the equipment and all that stuff, uh -huh. and you tend to whatever. Uh-huh. Was it hard to grow up? Were you in the shadow of your older brother in yes, some sense? Definitely. Was that hard? Yes. Uh huh. And and um, but you had this experience. Did you enjoy being the kind of manager of equipment and stuff? Was that no? You didn't. Okay. I did that because it was there to do, okay. and it was a way to be. I think it was a way to be close to my father. Mm -hmm. And I loved him, and mm -hmm. uh, I was happy to be in that role, and it was a good activity. So what, if if you were growing up in the shadow of the star quarterback older yeah. brother, and your father was the coach <clears throat> and teacher at the school, uh, was there a source of joy or energy or accomplishment or a sense of achievement that you experienced in that time, or was it a time of struggle? High school for me was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when I personally excelled. Mm -hmm. Not in those activities, but more in the student body kinds of okay. things that I was involved in. I get it. Um, no, that was a good period. Okay, College was more of a struggle for me. And where did you go to college? University of Washington. And how did that sense of struggle 
play out in college? Well, it was simply that I had to work my way mm-hmm. through college. There weren't any funds to support me, so I had to go to school in the morning and work every afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that was tough in the way that it didn't give me a lot of time to enjoy college like mm-hmm. I enjoyed high school. And what kind of things did you do to put yourself through college? I worked in a hardware store downtown. Mm-hmm. That's what I did every afternoon. Mm-hmm. And was there a, a part of the college work that you were drawn to particularly? You mean academically? Yeah. Um, I was a history major in the mm-hmm. College of Education, so I thought of myself as probably heading toward being a history teacher. Mm-hmm. So was your next step the theological seminary? It was. Okay, at Princeton. Yes. So how does a working class or lower middle class kid from the University of Washington <laughs> struggle to put himself through college working at a hardware store, thinking of himself as a history teacher? How does he come to enter Princeton Theological Seminary? What? How did that happen? Well, let's go back to the newspaper article. Right. Because what I experienced there was some huge opening to a world that I knew nothing about. And I knew that it was probably going to be very subjective. Somebody wasn't going to just lead me into that world. I was going to find it on my own, which is what I did. Um, There's a certain uh, explorer in me, which I can tell you more about. And I think that's what I did with that article, was to say, well, this is, there's something compelling here. There's something I feel is drawing me or, or calling me toward itself, but I don't know what that is. Um, In high school, that became identified for me as Christ. I went to a local church and got involved and began to hear the Christian message in ways that were uh, very appealing to me, um, intellectually substantial, slightly conservative, um, and for me, a springboard into social action. But that isn't the Christianity that I was taught. I had to learn that part on my own. Um, So there was very active, probably from that early age, a certain faith dimension to my life that I enjoyed. I mean, I knew I loved that. Um, What kind of church was it? Presbyterian. And did you choose Presbyterian or was that... No, it's one of those. It's the church down the block, you know, that you wander into or somebody invites you into. And And was there a minister there that inspired you? Oh, yeah. Who was that? Earl Palmer. Uh A very charismatic uh, adept teacher. And uh, who did take an interest in me and had a large student ministry, like a few hundred. 
and a person that I very much respected and <laughs> whose job I took over. I, be, I became that, I, after seminary, was in that very same position as my early mentor. Wow. I know. So he was really the person who mm. helped you move from this yep. vision of yourself as a history teacher yep. to this vision of yourself as entering the, That's the right. clergy. And he was a graduate of Princeton, and so that's... So he recommended you. Yeah. Wrote the letter. In fact. Yeah. Yeah, wrote that, the letter. That, and that's what got you in, basically. Yes. Yeah. I suppose. So what year did you arrive at Princeton Theological Seminary? Oh, let's think here. 1958. 1958. Did you fly across the country, take a train, drive, or what did you do? Drove. Uh huh. Your own car or so, with somebody? No, there there was a little group of us from the Northwest mm -hmm. that were students at Princeton together, and we several times drove back and forth across the country. So you arrive at Princeton. Had you been there before? Did you go for no. an interview? Uh. No. East Coast was all new to me. So what was it like to arrive in Princeton and enter the seminary? Well, it was um, it was fairly awesome uh, because I didn't travel as a kid because my parents came here to this island and that was it. I hadn't been to California or Victoria. I mean, I came here. So this was when I really launched myself to go to the East Coast from here and to be part of sort of that intellectual, you could almost say sort of elite establishment, it was thrilling and daunting. And I was very happy there. Whereas I, I told you in college was not, I wasn't doing enough besides studying and working. Although I did belong to a fraternity, but I wasn't a great fit for <laughs> this fraternity. So to go to the East Coast and be totally on my own, um, I was very happy at Princeton. And who were the main influences on you at Princeton? Or what? Well, that was a good question. I think probably the major influence was the president himself. Uh, president of Princeton? Princeton Seminary. Uh-huh. Uh, whom I later brought out to Seattle, um, John Mackay, who is a great scholar and um, a very distinguished gentleman. <laughs> uh -huh. And I, I definitely looked up to him and And did he, him, did he befriend you? Hmm? Did he befriend you? Not particularly. Okay. Um, no, what... The stimulation for me at Princeton were all the other people, the students, mm -hmm. and the kind of camaraderie uh, that we had just in the dormitory. And so being, uh, on as you, you made this journey, first of all, through the, the church in Seattle uh, with your mentor, um, and, then, uh, and then to, the, uh, to Princeton, um, your, your mentor, Earl Palmer, and then Princeton. Uh, 
What was your experience of the Christ? Experience of? The Christ. The Christ. Okay, here we go. It's interesting that you've said the Christ, because we wouldn't have said that in those days. We would have said Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or Christ, but only in later years, here at Chinook, and more influenced by the esoteric tradition, would we have said the Christ. So my early days, it was the Jesus of the New Testament, uh, and I was very interested in that, and particularly uh, the writings of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his book, to me, that was so critical, um, The Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer's writing in the 30s in Nazi Germany, and if you know about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he actually attempted to take Hitler's life and was imprisoned and executed, but had, became one of the most influential theologians of ever since. I mean, there's been a movie made about his life. But his book, see, I, I, there, there's something in the heart of it that's so compelling to me, but eventually I didn't like the severity of it or the words around it. But the feeling of a deep call into life, your life, uh, and in service to the world, to God, that that got me. And that's what Bonhoeffer was talking about over and over and helped you to understand that if you were going to follow that call, it had to be wholehearted. You had to do the whole thing. Um, as in the pictures of Christ calling the disciples, they left what they had and went with him. So that imagery, Michael, of Christ or the Christ calling people um, is really what was at the heart of my faith at that time. Now, was it a compelling intellectual faith or was there a uh, experience of Kairos time and transformative personal experience in that? I would say it's it's, it's that, it's all of what you've just said, but there's a mystery in it that exceeds what you've just said that I really feel that my call is more from that mystery that's a little bit more like the fog that we're seeing outside the window today, right now. Um, it is very difficult to name, and I would try. I mean, reading and discussing and going to classes and just on my own, trying to articulate my own faith to myself. Um, it always seemed inadequate. It always seemed that there's almost no way to name what I think I'm really feeling. Um, and I don't hear other people any more adequate at it than I am. And what I didn't, what I wasn't inclined to do was to accept 
a certain way of doing it or doing ministry or preaching or this or that or the language that you was all around you, say, at a seminary. It, I often found myself feeling congruent with the heart of what I thought it was, but not accepting the language around it. I felt like I was always taking exception to what I was hearing. Not that it seemed insincere, it just seemed inadequate. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, I think directly after seminary, but maybe it was during seminary, please correct me, you took a year and traveled around the world. Oh, you... (laughs) Yes, I did. No, okay, here's what I did. Was that after seminary? No, after two years. After two years of seminary. Yeah, of seminary. What year was it? Oh, 1960. 60? 1960, okay. Um, okay, now imagine this guy who leaves Whidbey Island in mm-hmm, Seattle right. and is now launched right. on the East Coast, and I did field work in New York City. And so I would take the train from Princeton and I would end up somewhere underneath New York City and come up into this extraordinary world that I knew nothing about. And I was working in a church on weekends on the Upper West Side, right where they filmed West Side Story. Which one? It was called the Good Shepherd Faith Presbyterian Church, right by Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. So was I in a different world Mm -hmm. now doing that kind of work? And I I loved it. And was working with kids and tough neighborhood and... I was in New York, and that was tremendously exhilarating. And I, I kind of learned the city. Uh, so that was part of my seminary experience. And then having done that, I thought, I'm, I really am going to launch. And I put up a world map on my wall in seminary in Alexander Hall, and I would just study that map. I'd study that map as hard as anything I was supposed to be reading for classes. And I loved it. And in fact, I love maps and charts. To this day, I love charts. And I just said, I'm going. Where am I going? And so I listened a lot to people and ideas and Places people had been or they were going to, and I was just on high alert for, okay, where? And I chose India, and ostensibly to study theology in a, in a seminary in South India, but it really became, my, again, another launch pad where I traveled incessantly all over India, riding in the baggage racks of third-class trains and sleeping on station platforms. And, Michael, what I was doing, I think, was just... I had a craving to be out and to walk on the earth and be with peoples that are just so different than people I knew. You're 24 years old. Yeah, well, yeah, younger. And, um, and so I was out there to expose myself, to educate myself, to see what happened and uh, to enter into other ways of thinking and being and, and national concerns. And I just, I just needed to be out there. And I, I traveled all over India and also did some work in the seminary. And 
got a certificate or something from them, um, and then traveled up north, up to Nepal, which had just opened as a country, and and sort of hitchhiking through Pakistan and Afghanistan, of all places, and into Iran, and then took a job teaching English as a second language in Iran for a year. And I loved that. And I traveled a lot in that country and around the Middle East. And again, that was another little place that I could move out from and then home through Europe. So I was gone about two and a half years. Did you uh, go to Jerusalem? I did. Mm -hmm. So in the course of these two and a half years, what were the moments of spirit experience shift opening, if you were to pick them out, uh, either moments or processes that took place as you traveled? Well, I can name, I could probably name many or none. <laughs> um, but one that comes to mind is was I was staying in an ashram, a small one up in North India, rural, that was run actually by an Anglican priest. And he had built a little chapel out in the side yard. And one wall was glass. And there were just a handful of us. As I remember, there weren't very many people actually in residence in this ashram when I was there. But we would gather a few times during the day in the chapel, usually for a kind of a quiet meditation. And in the evening, we would light these little oil lamps, which the priest reminded us people were doing all over India. This is the moment when people are lighting their little lamps. And we'd sit there on the dirt floor night after night, and doing these kinds of meditations, and it was quiet. And we were looking out only at the area where we had just peeled the potatoes. I mean, there was nothing great about the setting. But what I picked up, or was moved by, but is already sort of predisposed toward this, was this sense of the... the I'll use religious language, the sacredness of things, of place, of stuff, that everything was sort of, it was simple, but what was there in the simplicity was a kind of sacredness. It was just treated that way. You, Thomas Berry used to say, we must no longer treat things as things. And this was a little place in North India where it was, where everything was regarded uh, well. Mm -hmm. Nothing was wasted. Um, nothing was um, trashed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like every single little thing could be special. Any part of the day, any place, any conversation, any prayer, any candle. There was some importance infused in that simple setting. And I like that. And I think that that was part of my intention for Chinook, the very place we're sitting. I mean, I like looking out these windows at where we walk and people riding by in their bicycle like they just did. That, to me, is... There's something special about that. Mm. Um, 
Well, so that's, were, that's one piece, but there's another one. And is, um, it's sort of the difference between uh, Henry David Thoreau and John Muir. If, if Thoreau was interested in the, the small and the hourly, uh, Muir was interested in the, the huge, the majestic, the overwhelming, and that I certainly got when I went to Nepal. And I loved looking or being up in the the great mountains of the world, and that really impacted me. Uh, I mean that that moves me, and I just love being in the mountains. I love just gazing at the mountains. So that to me is a huge meditation to be in the mountains, and that happened to me, you know, just by roaming around and. Nepal and Srinagar. So those are two things that I can mention. Did you, uh, just out of curiosity, did you uh, run across or hear about Father Bede Griffins while you were there? Well, since then. Since yeah, then, certainly. but you didn't know about him then? No. Okay. And what about Oroville and uh, Aurobindo? I, I, that was not on my map. Yeah, I just wondered. Um, and just to ask, what about the experience in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem, I was glad that I could be there. Glad to see it. Got to see it. Right. It didn't move me. Didn't move you. Okay. Yeah. So you were gone for two and a half years. Right. <laughs> and you then came back to the seminary? I did. I had to do my last year. And what was your frame of mind coming back to the seminary from these two and a half years? Michael, you have the best questions. I, that's why I'm here. Oh, well, my frame of mind, I... That must have been what I was asking myself. Like, what what is my frame of mind after all that exposure and difficulty? I mean, I got kind of lonely out there because um, I did most of all this by myself. And coming back to the life I had left, it seemed like a lot of it... I think at first it seemed like a lot of it wasn't very important. Um, my priorities had received some kind of rearrangement. So by now it's 1963, right, yes, roughly? it is. So civil rights movement, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, well, they're, they're beginning. Yeah. That's right. the earliest beginnings right. of those things. Right. So I leave, a ra I graduated from Princeton, and I leave a rather placid, kind of Eisenhower years um, sort of scene, but you, definitely aware that things were shifting. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I was, I was prepared for ministry in a kind of setting and school that was highly suitable for the 50s, mm -hmm. not suitable whatsoever for the 60s as far as I was concerned. So I found a lot of my theological education is not particularly relevant. As I, it's like a, you're going to have to invent something new for yourself, which I did. Even so did you go directly from the seminary to taking the job at the University of Washington? I did. You did. And had your mentor retired at that point, uh, or did you literally... Take his place. Oh, you're it. so good. I, on the night before my last theological exam, there was a phone call. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And he ran downstairs and was talking to my mentor, mm-hmm. who said, Fritz, I'm going to leave my position in the church, and I think you should take it. Can I recommend you to the committee? Wow. And in my last months or year at seminary, where my mind had been so shifted, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I couldn't imagine myself going to a small church in New Jersey or something, so I didn't interview for any jobs. I just thought, I, I'm supposed to wait. I just, it'll, it'll somehow find you. Um, so so you, there, you, on that last night, it, I get this phone call. So you come back yeah. uh, to your family, yeah. to the city where you grew up, right. to Whidbey Island, right. uh, 1964 or so? 63, 64. 63, 64. What was it like for, were your mother and father still alive? Mm-hmm. What was it like for your mother and father and your older brother and your sisters for uh, Fritz to come back from uh, Princeton Theological Seminary with these experiences in the two and a half years wandering and take the position as the minister of the church? What was it like for them? I've never really thought about that. Um, I think that they watched me they were probably proud of me. Mm-hmm. They probably felt they didn't understand me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was certainly loving toward them, but I don't know how much I tried to explain to them. Although I did write to them regularly as I was traveling and from seminary, and I still have those letters, which is now my journal, I think. Uh, I didn't realize they didn't keep a journal, which I wish I had, but I was writing regularly. So I think I wanted to bring my parents into my life. I certainly didn't want to leave them out, but I was off on another planet as far as they were concerned. In fact, I'll tell you a story. When I, in the early years of Chinook, my father very lovingly took me aside and said, Fritz, would you tell me one more time what Chinook is so I can tell my friends? It's like he has such a hard time understanding what I was doing, but he wanted to understand. And he wanted to be able to say to his friends what his son did. So there was some... Well, what did you say to him? I said to him whatever I thought Chinook was in those early years. Uh-huh. Um, I probably said to him it was a, a new form of ministry. Uh, I think that's how we did think about it in the early years. It was sort of busing out, breaking away, doing something mm-hmm. that wasn't, it wasn't in reaction as it was trying to, or we thought, but it was, of course, um, it was trying to invent something new. So we would call it a new form of ministry. And my father was very accepting of that. Um, but I felt I think I, coming home, I felt very self-conscious, like, oh, man, what am I doing? Um, I'm, I'm sort of between worlds. Um, and now I come into this big, fairly conservative church where I know a lot of people because it was church, a church I was active in and following a very accomplished person in this work of university ministry, not 
not the head guy, but the, was on the staff of this large church. And uh, so I had some big shoes to fill, I thought, um, and I was going to have to do it not the way he did it, and which is hard, you know, to not do it the way your mentor did it. So that was kind of a struggle for me to figure out how I was going to do it. How did you do that? Well, Michael, maybe um, there is something to being the middle child that where you kind of figure it out for yourself. You're not the oldest who dutifully follows or the youngest that gets a lot of the attention. You're the middle one who just, you're okay, you're safe, um, but you sort of take off quietly and figure things out for yourself. And that's what I did. And I think that's actually what I've always done. I'm doing it again today. Um, I, I often feel there isn't an exact precedent or there's no cookie cutter for this work that's emerging. I mean, you've done the same thing. Uh, it's like, in fact, I wrote in my book, The Iona Report, my favorite question in life became, What's now next? what? Yeah. Now what? Now what? Now, now, yeah. now what do I do? Yeah. Okay, I got I got here okay. Yeah. What's what's next? I, By the way, what happened to your older brother and your sister, if I may ask? My older brother was killed in a mountain climbing accident. Oh. Yep. How, he was young and I was what? I was just a junior in high school. Really? Yep. Very um he was an expert mountaineer. Wow. And uh, he fell. And so that was an event. What year was that about? Oh, I can't remember the year. I was, well, let's see, it would have been 1957. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that experience was forever You were a junior in high school. Yeah, forever difficult for my family. Yeah. Um, And uh, I watched my mother um, go quiet Uh and get sick and almost unable to integrate the accident, mm-hmm. the tragedy of it. And she took a long time, but she went downhill and died. Uh-huh. My father, bless his heart, uh, within a few days of the accident, was collecting all the pictures around the house from anywhere, uh, of my brother, so he turned into it. Mm-hmm. I, I could see this happening. He really embraced my f- brother's death, and he would sit in his room. Um, my father would sit in my brother's room and just deal with it. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually, my fa- one day, my father told me. He said, um, "Whenever there's an accident in anybody any family in the high school something happens to some kid my father would go out and visit the family and he said before the accident my father he said I never could have done that I wouldn't have known what to say Hmm. but so my father had a deep empathy for other people who then had some sort of similar experiences almost like he was a pastor going out and Mm -hmm. 
visiting with people. So my father lived then a pretty buoyant existence and trucked on with his life and a great friend and help to me uh, in my life and my work here. And yeah, he was... What happened with your sister? My sister doing just fine. She lives mm-hmm. in Seattle. What is um, she? What's her life about? Wonderful family and mm-hmm. two kids that are all doing mm-hmm. well, and they've got kids, so they're mm-hmm. she and her husband are happy grandparents. And I see my sister; we're very quite close. And when quite did your similar. father die? Pardon me. When did your father mm, die? About fifteen years ago. Mm. So. Um, so here you were, yeah. campus minister, yes. uh, uh, starting around 1966, replacing uh, your mentor who asked you to take the position, uh, conservative church, um, uh, the 60s are now in full swing. Uh, you have a sense that what you were taught at Princeton Theological Seminary was right for the 50s Eisenhower years, but not for the 60s you were in. Uh, And so you're going to have to find your way. And you did this campus ministry for just about 10 years, didn't you? Yeah, nine years. Okay. So what was your ministry like? How did you find that balance between the conservatism of the church, your own questions, what was happening in the 60s? What was your path that uh, was able to satisfy the various constituencies that you as a middle son were trying to, you know, synthesize or harmonize or whatever? Great question. Um, Those of us who were active in the 60s, uh, the word radical was so common with us, or becoming radicalized. And I sensed that that is exactly what one sees in the life of Christ. I mean, when you really read the New Testament, the radical exegete it carefully, which I was Mm -hmm. taught to do, uh, Christ, the Christ, was often at odds, right? Certainly with the establishment, religious or civil, and... uh, often at odds with his very disciples. Um, And there's truly a radical, a a loving, a radically loving, speaking uh, individual. And I think that's why we today are still so intrigued by him because of this mixture of highly sensitive to the people around him and to his political situation and willing to risk, as we know the story, his own life, um, to speak of or to um, point toward what the New Testament describes as the kingdom of God. Um, That goodness in life, which is here in us and among us, and it's our responsibility to help further or invoke um, that we wouldn't use the word kingdom, but that vision 
uh, and to demonstrate that vision of, um, let's use the word goodness. Um, so that's there in a very radical way, I always thought. I was helped to see that. Bonhoeffer helped me that, and that's what appealed to me. And that was very much my message. What helped you see that? Bonhoeffer, the German Bonhoeffer, theologian. right. Uh, and that's often what I was speaking about when I was speaking to college students. Um, and I can remember once in a while a college student would say to me, well, that's fine for us for you to speak that way, but what are you doing? Because in the 60s, we all pushed against each other a lot. And and I would think, well, yeah, what am I doing? I mean, I'm talking this. What am I doing? And that's probably what took me to Selma and to participate in that historic moment. Um, you were on the Selma March? Yes. And that's... What year was that? I'm trying to remember. Was that 66? Something like that, okay. I have to look that one up. And uh, I remember an incredible photograph of uh, Martin Luther King arm-in-arm arm with Abraham Joshua Heschel, right? Mm. Wasn't he there? I'm pretty certain he was. There were a lot of people. Yeah. Who do you remember being there? Well, I remember Martin Luther King being there. Right, for sure. And uh, the day that we marched under the court injunction from the Little Brown Church in the heart of Selma, uh -huh. it was not very far away from Martin Luther King, and, and heard him say, without a microphone, um, tell your children and your grandchildren that you were here. And yeah. see, white clergy were invited by King. He right. wanted us there. Right. Uh, he felt that we could be some kind of leverage in this whole system breaking right. loose in the South. And one day I remembered that, and I said to Timothy, my son, oh, I have something I have to tell you mm -hmm. that Martin Luther King told us to say, mm -hmm. you know, that I was there, that you, you were part of this. You, you understood the importance of this. Of was, Tim, was Timothy with you? No, 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 but okay. I mean, I told oh, yeah, years, yeah, years you, later, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, I to say, say that to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was a great high water moment. In, Did you go to prison? No, no, I was okay. 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 But I, in my orientation, as soon as I got to Selma, I still have this little pocket Bible. Uh -huh. And inside of it, I wrote, if arrested, uh -huh. call this phone number. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, no, we were, we were safe. Um, but that, that was a radicalizing moment uh, for me, of course. Um, but I obviously had been radicalized enough to get there in the first place. Uh -huh. um, so that was typical of my ministry days, being in this conservative church, but letting the church understand, the bigger congregation, that I felt that I was following this New Testament Christ. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I spoke of it. And did they, uh, so you were the radical, you were the radical minister. Yeah, you but they the, liked me. They, they got liked along you. well. So they would listen to what I had to say. Yeah, so I you were. I wasn't it, obnoxious. You weren't obnoxious, and, and they liked you, and they had this yeah. minister who was reflective of the times in a certain yeah. sense. Yeah. I remember one time creating this huge banquet where we invited 
lots of older people in the church and all the younger people I could find, and we called it the Generation Gap Banquet. Remember Generation Gap was mm-hmm. one of our terms in those mm-hmm. days. So I tried to bridge, and uh, when it was time to leave, it was not an unhappy departure. It was We had a lot of people we loved in that church, mm-hmm. but it was clearly time for me to leave. So when did you meet Vivian? Well, <laughs> I met her right there in the church. In my first months as the new campus minister mm-hmm. in that congregation, Vivian was wow. in this big scene of students. And the first time that I know that I saw her, she got up to give an announcement. And there was something about her standing there um, something in her voice, something in what she said, something in her presence that I thought, oh, there's a very special person. And that's where we met, right there in the church. And uh, how did you get to know her? By secretly mm-hmm. going out for coffee. It, it, there was something in those days that said, well, the minister doesn't date people in the congregation. So we were very circumspect as mm-hmm. good kids. And after several months of you know, going out together, announced it one day in the church, just like, okay, here goes. Announced what? That we were, what did we announce? That we were engaged. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then we were married in that church. And, of course, that's where I was ordained into the ministry mm-hmm. in that church. So... In the course of my lifetime, yes. uh, I have to say that some of the most powerful memories I have are of the people I've loved. Mm. And so uh, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand for myself that that experience of deeply powerful love for actual human beings um, can also bring one, as the Sufis believe, to the, uh, the edge of the divine. That there's something about, for many people, the power of love that connects us to the divine. So my question to you is whether, as you came to know and love Vivian, was it simply a sense that you loved this person or was there a sense that between the two of you it was bringing you into the presence of something larger than the two of you? Wonderful question, Michael. Thank you. It would be nice if Vivian were sitting here and we could share together on this one. And I'm hoping to have a conversation with Vivian, too, at some point. Again, I'm sitting here looking at the fog, because who understands the mystery of Mm -hmm. these things? Mm -hmm. And the love between Mm -hmm. people, um, and the confusion Mm -hmm. that love brings. so, if we're happy and healthy, 
a year from now, it'll be our, we get to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Wonderful. And we plan to do that. I would say, and I think Vivian would concur with this, that we not only fell in love with each other, we knew from the very beginning that there was something like around us or ahead of us that was, I think, in the very same kind of way calling us toward it, not just to each other, but we were called as... We might have said in those days we feel called to serve a higher vision together. Um, So always the two of us have had in common what Thomas Berry would call the great work. So in a way, that's what drew us together and drew us forward together and drew us through any tough times together is this great sense of mutual call. You know, you fell in love with a very extraordinary woman. This book that you edited uh, called Earth and Spirit, The Spiritual Dimension of the Environmental Crisis, which um, was published in 1993, uh, and it has uh, chapters. I'll go into the other contributors in a bit. But the the first chapter by Vivian Hall, 1993... (laughs) Is called the power of the well-packed question. Right. So I am, by my nature, a reader. Mm-hmm. And I know when I encounter a first-rate mind. Mm. And my goodness, but Vivian's chapter on uh, the power of um, uh, the power of the um, well-packed question is a remarkable piece of work. You know, and uh, you you have always been um, very clear in your writing uh, that, um, for example, the back cover copy on your wonderful book Iona Report: Story of an Enduring Vision, which just came out last year, the story of forty years of uh, your work, and the bio on the back uh, says, uh, "Here is the story of a couple, a couple." Mm-hmm. Fritz and Vivian Hall, who for 40 years have led retreats on the island of Iona in Scotland. And then it goes on to say, Fritz Hall is the director of the Spirit of Legacy Project and the School for Knowing Home programs of the Whitby Institute. Throughout this process, uh, you have described, um, accurately described, Vivian as your partner mm-hmm. in this work. And you and I both know, I mean... I was sharing with you before we started taping that, that um, as you know, I started Commonweal in 1976. You started Chinook in 1972, right? Yes. And so, in effect, for 36 years for me, for 40 years for you, um, we've been associated with, active in, influential in, uh, these centers that we're trying to serve life in various ways that mm-hmm. we're involved with uh, uh, one in Bolinas, California, the other on Whidbey Island. Um, and um, actually, as you know, 
my wife Cheryl and I, who's been my partner in the work at Commonweal, um, recently uh, bought a little house in the town of Langley, which your son Tim lived in for some time. Right. And, um, and I felt literally, I wasn't looking for a second home, or I felt literally called mm. to come up to Whidbey mm. mm. uh, because I felt I had work to do here. And, um, and, you know, so my story, teaching at Yale in the early 70s, leaving a tenure-track position there to start a school for troubled kids in Bolinas, California, <laughs> a town like uh, uh, Langley, um, then in 76, starting Commonweal. And so I have, and I mentioned to you that Sister Miriam McGillis, who started Genesis Farm, on the East Coast, likewise, has been at it for about 40 years. Right. So these three centers, just to name three, here we are, three people. I just did a new school conversation with her uh, last week. Um, these three people have stayed with these things for 40 years through good times and through hard times. Right. You talk about the cost of discipleship. Yes. You talk about doing it in a wholehearted way. Right. It's actually rather simple to do this. You just have to give your entire life to it. <laughs> and then you have to be fortunate enough for it to work out in some way. Right. You know? right. Um, so there's this, this uh, experience that we share wow. of 40 years of joy and struggle and the highest parts and the saddest parts, I think, are held in the, you know, in the whatever we want to call it, the vessel of these places that we were crazy enough to found when we were young, right? <laughs> yes. you know? right. So you married this uh, extraordinary woman. Um, and uh, one of the things you did, um, and you'll have to help me with the date, is that you, um, you took a sabbatical or whatever, you packed up your one-year-old son, Timothy, Mm -hmm. You went to Europe, you got a van, you traveled around Europe and consciously chose <clears throat> the island of Iona as yeah. the last stop. And in the Iona report, you tell the story of um, what happened to you on Iona, what it meant to you, and, um, and how it influenced what you decided to do at Chinook. So could you say... A little about that story. <laughs> sure. Oh, Michael, it, when things go on this long and uh, get this complicated, it's um, it's difficult to just summarize or give a quick overview. Um, we got time, Fritz. Okay. It's important to mention talking about Vivian, that she was born and raised in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, for her to be attracted to Iona, which is not far from Ireland, it is definitely in that zone of uh, tradition and just the ambience of Iona is very similar to the Ireland that Vivian knew growing up, uh, and she heard about Iona as a little kid. 
So something remained in her that attracted her towards some imaginary island in Scotland. And I heard about it as a, a new form of ministry because this Scottish minister, young man, George MacLeod, starting his ministry in the really toughest areas of Glasgow just before World War II, decided that he would take people from his congregation out to this lonely little island off the west coast of Scotland, and there they could do masonry and this and that and, and rebuild an ancient abbey. And that's how his work, now this is Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian, and he then began to restore um, really an 11th century building um, and found a community, the Iona community, which is a thriving community to this day. I've been there. Yeah. You've been there, mm -hmm. right. Okay, so then you can you can see all this. Uh, so to weave a couple of stories together, uh, in one of, I think it was 1970, in the Presbyterian Church where I was, George McLeod showed up and, and preached from the pulpit. And I was totally amazed. This is after we had first gone to Iona in 1970. And so I asked him, what was he doing the next day? And he didn't have anything on. So I said, would you like to come with me up to Woodby Island and I can show you the beginnings of this experiment that we're doing that's sort of based on the vision of your work on Iona. So he came and he sat right over there in the corner in a shabby old farmhouse and happily told us the whole story of the founding of Iona. And, and so... Not only was the place an inspiration, the Iona community, the island of Iona, George McLeod himself. So we were, we were given an, uh, just a bolt of inspiration and in a certain sense a template uh, to, if we were going to start a community, here was a very successful non-residential community. When did he start that, more or less? The late 30s. Uh-huh. And it was a community in dispersion. It was a community that gathered once a year. It was a community that had a covenant. Um, and so I thought, that's pretty good. So when Vivian and I took off to travel in a Volkswagen camper around Europe in 1970 discussing what were we going to do next because we knew we had to leave the church and we knew we wanted to start something new. But we didn't know what it was. So we just talked all summer. <laughs> and ended up, because I had heard about this place that she knew about, and um, so there we were on Iona for two weeks. And I was very impressed by the community, the work of the Abbey. Vivian was very impressed by the island and the islanders, and this more mythic, older sense of Irish Christianity or Celtic Christianity. She literally discovered that in the Abbey Library. So on our last day on Iona, I remember standing on the shore saying, okay, we're going to go home. We're going to leave the church. We're going to start something. 
on the old farm that we had purchased a few years earlier. And it's going to be some kind of a covenant community like Iona. So for the first time, those dreams sort of elided. They came together for me and I I could see, okay, you could take the old farm and do sort of what George McLeod did and get some people together and see if they want to be a community. And, and you're going to have to leave the church and take your last paycheck and go. Oh, and George McLeod said to me, sitting over there, he said, now when you leave the church, your last day, he said, you just go slam the door and say, oh, damn. <laughs> and you did. So I did. Of course I did. <laughs> yeah. So um, with the last paycheck, I remember what we did. We bought two bicycles, two sleeping bags, and a stereo system. And we didn't have any money or we had no paycheck coming. That was it. And we moved into the family summer house. And in the summertime, when they still came to their summer house, we lived in the little cabin just up there. Right. That was the beginning. Wow. Why don't we take a short break? Good. Good. <laughs> 